Speed up with podcast speed up. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I am your host, Massimo Pigliucci. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Julia Galef. So, Julia, what are we talking about today? Well, Massimo, today is our most important episode ever, because this is the episode in which we justify this entire endeavor. Uh, today's topic is, why is speaking rationally a worthwhile goal, anyway? Some people argue that irrationality can make us happier, at least in certain situations. And other people feel that rational is synonymous with cold, soulless, and dispassionate. In other words, not human. So today we're going to ask, are there downsides to being rational? And if so, are they necessarily outweighed by the upsides? Good question. Let's start by dispelling this myth that, that rationality is necessarily opposed to passion. Um, this was this has actually has a long history. It goes all the way back at least to Plato um, and, and to some extent to Aristotle, who, who made that argument that rationality, that, that human beings are the rational animal, and then therefore they should be characterized by or emphasized their rationality over other aspects of, of our nature, including the emotions. But why would these philosophers think that being rational would make you less emotional? I just don't get it. Well, the idea was that if you are... Um, if, if the emotions become too strong, in other words, if they're not controlled... Uh, then they lead you to do things that you're going to regret, that are not in your long-term interest. And, of course, if somebody has or something has to control the emotions, then who is going to do that? And the idea was that the faculty of reason being the highest and the most developed in humans, at least that's what Plato thought, uh, then, uh, then uh, reason should take over, essentially, and control rationality. Hmm. So yours and my favorite philosopher, David Hume, is famous for uh, establishing a relationship between reason and emotion. He said, Reason is and ought only to be the slave of the passions and can never pretend to any other office than to serve and obey them. That's, That's a widely quoted sentiment, but I'm not sure, I'm not totally clear on what it means. How would you interpret that, Massimo? Well, Hume was the first philosopher who actually abandoned that tradition of, of ultra rationalism that goes back to Plato, as I, as I said earlier. He was the first one who actually questioned this whole idea. And he said, well, wait a minute, but in fact, one of the most important things about being human is that we have such strong emotions, that we care about things. And what that quote in particular uh, can be read to, to say is something along the lines of, look, unless you actually care for something, uh, it doesn't matter how many reasons one can possibly come up uh, with to do something. Unless you care, unless you have an emotional attachment to something, uh, you're simply not going to do it. Um, so this is the first time that a philosopher actually expressly said something on the lines of, look, rationality by itself is not enough. In fact, Hume went as far as saying that rationality essentially is a means to an end, but the end is determined by the emotions. You want to become something, a, you know, uh, a sports player uh, or an athlete or a philosopher or something else, and then you use reason to... 
uh, guide you to, to, through the best path to get there. But the reason you want to go there, it's not nothing to do with rationality. It's because you care about it. In other words, it's a result of, of your emotional um, um, uh, underground, so to, so to speak. Right. And a number of our commenters actually touched on that theme. Um, Costas said that ultimately there's no completely rational reason to take any action whatsoever. It sounds like he and humor are on the same page there. That's right. I mean, the, the classic example is is very simple, right? So if I get up and, and, and go to the refrigerator and, and, and take a beer out of the refrigerator, uh, what's the reason for doing that? Well, the reason for doing that is because I'm thirsty, presumably, or because I want to you know, have a, a good time with friends while watching a sports event or something. But the, uh, the, the motivation, essentially, is not reason because there are many other ways, other things that I could do reasonably instead. Uh, and there's no particular reason for me to get up and get a beer as opposed to something else. The reason I do that is because, in fact, I have a, a under, underlying uh, emotional need that is going to be satisfied by that particular action. Then reason tells me that the beer that I want is actually in the refrigerator, that I have to get up at a particular point and do certain things to actually get there. Right? So reason is a tool. So reason becomes the tool. Right. right. And that idea is, is actually – now you may have, one can argue, um, sort of a little exaggerated on the opposite side sort of to counterbalance Plato. You know, Plato was the guy that said reason has to control things. Hume almost seems to say the opposite, right? It seems to, see, to say that, that the emotions actually control the whole, the whole show and reason is only a means to an end. Um, modern neurobiology, and I think a lot of modern philosophers, would try to strike, strike a, a middle ground between these two. Uh, for instance, there is work in neurobiology done by Antonio Damasio, uh, who has written several books. Um, the one that I recommend um, is called uh, The Feeling of What Happens. And it is about how we get... Uh, consciousness, how would, get, how would we get conscious feelings? And in that book and in a couple of others that he wrote, Damasio argues that actually a human being has to have a balance between the reasoning part and the emotional part, and he shows that neurologically. Uh, the, the seat of reason, more or less, is the frontal lobes. It's the frontal, frontal area of the brain. The seat of, uh, at least in part, of the emotions uh, is the, the amygdalas, which are these little two things at the, at the base of our, of our brain. And what neurobiology shows is that the two are uh, very deeply interconnected. There are a lot of neurons that go from the uh, frontal lobes into the amygdalas and vice versa. So there's this constant uh, feed feedback back and forth between the two areas. And we know that if that feedback is interrupted, there are people who have non-functional amygdalas because of accident or, or disease, for instance. Uh, that breaks a, an, an equilibrium and the resulting human being is anything that you really don't want to be. It's, it's a, this, this hyper-rational person who, however, doesn't care about anything. So, Massimo, I, I'm really interested in this idea of rationality being a tool that we use just to, to achieve our ends. Because I think it's important to think about this when we're deciding whether we should actually make, try to make other people more rational. Uh, I think you and I are both really big on promoting rationality and critical thinking. But I have the sense that we're actually doing it for different reasons. So for my part, I think I would love to be able to say that the reason that I promote rationality is that I think it's for the good of the world, that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to help society. But honestly, if I really examine my own motivations, I do it because irrationality bugs me, frankly. And it's emotionally satisfying for me to, uh -huh. to try to combat irrationality. <laughs> now, right. I, do, I do think... That on balance, if I had to guess, I'd say the net effect of this endeavor is good. But that's more of a lucky coincidence as actually, far as I'm concerned. That's, but that's a good example of what I was saying, right? So um, I think that one can make – we can both make a, a rational, you know, reasoned argument that 
uh, a lot of problems in the world, both at, for individuals and for sort of society at large, uh, derive from the fact that there, frankly, isn't enough critical thinking going around. There isn't enough use of reason and rationality in the broader sense. Um, and so that we can make the argument that it would be better for human beings at large and for society at large to use more rationality. But your example also points out that, in fact, the reason we're doing these podcasts, for instance, or the reason we write for the blog or the reason we do these kind of outreach thing- things is because we care, right? There is no reason for us to care because we're not necessarily directly personally affected by the relatively low level degree of, of, of rationality in society at large. I mean, uh, if you're shielded enough from that then you really don't have any personal reason to do it. You do it because you have a passion. You do it because you care. You do it, as you put it a minute ago, because irrationality really irks your nerves. Right, Right, but in my case, I don't see it as a moral duty. I, again, I do it because I care, but I don't. I don't think I'm. I'm doing it out of any sort of moral obligation. Whereas I get the sense that for you, you do feel that, that we have a moral obligation to promote the truth. Yes, I do think that there is a moral obligation to promote the truth, and, and we should probably have a separate, a whole separate show about moral obligations and when they come from, and, and so on. Uh, but even if you don't, the thing is, you know, you can approach the problem from from a purely pragmatic perspective, which I suspect it is what you're doing. You, you say, well. This would be a better wor- world if certain kinds or you know, certain degrees of rationality um, were more common among the population at large, and therefore you act on it because as a utilitarian, essentially, as somebody who says, well, this is just going to have got good consequences. Um, but again, although that is the reason you do it, in fact, the motivation, the ultimate motivation to spend your time doing what you're doing comes from the fact you have a passion for it, that you care at an emotional level for it. If it's just a matter of somebody telling you, well, this is how you should ch- uh, spend your time because these are the reasons why you should do it, uh, my guess is you probably wouldn't because there's, there's much better reasons, for instance, for the two of us uh, to do uh, other things other than these podcasts at this particular mo- moment. I mean, I could think easily of rational arguments, for instance, for why we should, if we care about humanity at large, for instance, we should be in Africa volunteering our, our um, work uh, helping people who are starving or something like that. You can easily make up that sort of reasons, but they wouldn't strike enough an emotional chord with us to actually motivate us to do that sort of thing. Okay. So the easy examples are the examples in which my urge to make the world more rational has clearly good consequences, like, say, combating the anti-vaccination people. I mean, I think that has really unambiguously good consequences. But the harder cases are the cases in which we're actually making someone less happy, by by trying to make them see the truth. Correct. Um, so I'm interested in your claim that it's that it's the a moral obligation to promote rationality. Right. What if that conflicts with someone's happiness? That, Do we that's still have it, a moral obligation? Yes, that because really? moral obligations are in fact largely, although not entirely, independent of someone's happiness. So if you knew that you were going to make someone miserable for the rest of their life by uh, disabusing them of a false belief, you would still do it. I think there is a, there is a limit. No, I don't, I don't have um, that kind of clear-cut uh, opinions about it, but I, I think there is a continuum there. Uh, so, for instance, this, this, is, uh, an, this is an example of uh, what philosophers often refer to as the, the, the red pill and blue pill problem, which, of course, refers to the, to the movie, The Matrix. Uh, if you remember the movie, there was this situation where the reality was that human beings were essentially slaves um, being used by um, super intelligent computers, but they, these computers um, 
basically fed human beings this this illusion that life was just fine and there was no problem and, right. and so on and so forth, right? So at, at a crucial point in the movie, uh, the main character is offered this possibility of either taking a blue pill, which would essentially erase his memories of the real situation. He would go back to the fantasy world, live his life in complete ignorance of the fact that he's actually living a falsehood. Or he could take the red pill, and he would plunge into the reality as it in fact is, which is much harsher, and he would have to fight the machines and so on and so forth. Now, we know that, of course, the main character in question does pick the red pill, otherwise there wouldn't be any movie, uh, right? Had he picked the blue pill, that would have been the end of the movie, that's it. But I think the philosopher would, would make the argument that taking the red pill is the right thing to do, broadly speaking, in terms of What of, about force-feeding someone else the red pill? Force-feeding someone else the red pill is, in fact, something that I would Or even offering it to them. Yeah, I would Even letting them know of its existence and offering them the choice. Good point. So there is a distinction there, right? So one thing is to force-feed somebody, and another thing is to offer the possibility. I think that personally, at the least, I would draw the line at force-feeding. So no, I wouldn't impose um, a choice of that kind on somebody else, but I would definitely tell him, I think that would be my moral duty to tell him, of that choice, which is why I think it is a good idea, for instance, for me to offer, you know, courses in critical thinking and allow people who want to take them uh, to take them. But the problem is once once you've really explained the the rational truth and really made someone understand it so that they actually have that choice, then it's, there's kind of no turning back. I don't feel like That's someone right. can fully understand the truth and then just decide to go back to the way they were before, which is why it's such an ethically fraught question. That's so, right. And the, in fact, there is an interesting um, uh, question there, which is, do we actually control our beliefs? Uh, the idea that a lot of philosophers have is that beliefs are beyond our control, meaning that you cannot decide to believe something. Once that your brain has done its largely subconscious analysis of the situation and reached a particular conclusion, uh, you can be persuaded of a different conclusion eventually by argument or evidence, but it's not like you can will the belief away. So once you know, for instance, that a placebo effect doesn't work, that it's not the real medicine, it is a placebo, uh, very likely, I would guess, the placebo effect is going to be gone. Well, that, that's a great example. What about someone who believes that homeopathic remedies help them get over their cold? Or, or how about someone with chronic pain who believes that homeopathy helps resolve their pain? Do we treat that as, as an exception to the overall rule that promoting rationality is the moral thing to do? Right. That's a, no, that's a great question. And in fact, uh, I do know that uh, that discussion is going on in the, in the medical community, not just about homeopathy in particular, but about the placebo effect in general. You know, should doctors actually use, willfully use the placebo effect uh, to ameliorate uh, people's conditions? Uh, if we put it in terms of placebo effect, I don't think that's as much of a problem as... Uh, positively uh, endorsing pseudoscience or pseudomedicine. So if I'm going to say to somebody, yeah, yeah, go ahead because homeopathy works, I think that's going beyond just promoting a placebo effect. That is actually promoting pseudomedicine. And pseudomedicine can have harmful effects because that person may, for instance, not uh, use standard medicine uh, because he thinks that uh, homeopathy is going to work. And there may be serious consequences, health consequences for that. And more broadly, that sort of attitude then then reinforces this kind of loose, uh, irrational thinking about medicine and health in general in society. And I think that has negative consequences. So, I, so there is a line to be drawn there between the placebo effect per se, which I think it's fine if, if medical doctors within limits can, can use it, 
um, and the promotion, the downright direct promotion of pseudomedicine. Mm-hmm. Okay, here, here's another example in which irrationality, holding false beliefs might be in someone's best interest. How about when the truth is extremely disturbing and there's nothing that you can actually do to change it? Like, well, one of our commenters, Angel, made the point that the idea that we're going to die and there's nothing we can do about it, that that if we if we fully face that truth, it might just cause our brains to crash essentially and plunge us into existential crises, and that would interfere with our our purpose as as um, functional human beings. As functional human beings, right. thank you. And that's why our brains develop these patches, essentially, of beliefs in in an afterlife. So uh, Angel says we must remember that these silly irrationalities are there for a reason before we try to remove these patches and bring people over to the side of logic. And That's reason. right. So, so for instance, again, this is a matter of degrees, right? So if somebody, if I were faced with somebody who is really old or terminally ill patient and that person, you know, has a fantasy about an afterlife and so on and so forth, let's say, let's take a personal example, my grandmother, for instance, I would never try and I never try to dissuade my grandmother from her belief in an afterlife. Because it wouldn't do any good uh, at this point. It's too late. But as far as a younger person, for instance, who, um, uh, in, 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 in whose case a critical analysis of that kind of belief would actually change his or her outlook for the rest of their life, I think that's, that's much more open to, to debate whether we should try to do that or not. Both for that individual, because that individual would, in fact, be living a very different life, uh, if he got rid of, of those beliefs. And also, for, again, for society at large, because let's, let's not forget that these kinds of irrational beliefs do have consequences at a societal level. They do foster other kinds of irrational beliefs, and sometimes they even foster uh, you know, violent action uh, within society. So I think that there is, a, uh, there is a continuum there again. There are situations where it probably isn't a good idea and it's not even morally necessarily defensible to, um, to interfere with other people's beliefs. But there are a lot of other cases where that, that, case, can, that, that case for action can be made. Mm. An interesting side issue uh, came up. I was at a party the other night and I was talking to someone about rationality, which seems to happen a lot. I, it kind of amazes me that anyone still invites me to parties. But I was going to say, what kind of parties do you go to normally? But go ahead, yes. Um, but against all odds, they do invite me to parties. And so I was talking to someone and, uh, about, about this topic. And he said that, you know, if you tried to convince someone, say, say you're trying to, to convince someone that there's no, no afterlife, um, if, you, if you do a completely successful job... Um, of convincing them, then they can actually, you know, change the way they live their life and and maybe make the most of their life in a way that they wouldn't have if they had been relying, counting on an afterlife coming later. But let's say you don't fully convince them. Let's say you, which is actually more likely, um, yes. let's say you've succeeded in planting a little bit of doubt in their mind that wasn't there before, but you haven't actually convinced them enough to the point that they'd be changing the way they actually live their life. Then I think you could argue you've made that person unambiguously worse off. So they don't have the benefit of an actual change in, in their life, but they also no longer have the comfort of absolute certainty. Right. But, but we don't have a control, obviously, over to what degree people can be persuaded of one opinion or another or what they're going to do with it. So the way I see it is sort of the, the positive flip side of what you just said, which is um, I am going to present my best argument for what I think is a truer belief 
or a truer understanding of reality. And then it's the other person. You know, we're talking about adult human beings, so it's the other person's um, uh, privilege and work and duty to work out things out for himself. And, and yes, plenty of people may come up with sort of hybrid beliefs that uh, make only part sense and, and that may cause them problems. But that may also cause them to think about things more carefully and to um, you know, engage in a, in a quest for, for years to come about how to make sense of, of life. Oh, Massimo, we could definitely talk about this for 10 more episodes, but we have to wrap it up. You can all go to rationallyspeaking.org to comment on this and future topics. For now, we're moving on to the Rationally Speaking Picks. Welcome back. Every episode, Julia and I pick a couple of our favorite books, movies, websites, or whatever tickles our rational fancy. Let's start with Julia's pick. So my pick today is the list of paradoxes on Wikipedia. It's actually a really comprehensive and really interesting catalog of paradoxes throughout the ages, and they've categorized them by type of paradox. So they've got all sorts of scientific paradoxes, uh, which they then group by physics paradoxes and chemistry paradoxes and biology paradoxes. And then they've got paradoxes in math. And then those are subdivided into paradoxes related to infinity and paradoxes related to recursion, logic paradoxes, um, religious paradoxes. It's great. Um, definitely don't check it out unless you have at least a few hours and a few brain cells to kill. It, it is a great resource. Uh, of course, as you, um, we were noticing earlier, this is a site where the word paradox is used in sort of a broad sense. Right. right? Okay. Yes, that's, that's true. Um, some of them are more uh, unsolved mystery That's than paradox. right, yeah, science questions that have not, that have not been fully addressed or something like that. Because technically speaking, of course, the paradox is something that belongs only to logic and I guess to some extent to math, which I tend to think of as a branch of logic anyway. But if we're talking about, for instance, what they say, you know, what they categorize under biological paradoxes, like the, the first one on the list, it's the French paradox, which they define this way. The observation that the French suffer a relatively low incidence of coronary heart disease, despite having a diet relatively rich in saturated fats. Okay, yeah, that's not a paradox. Right, it is not a paradox. <laughs> it's, actually, it's, a it's, a, it's a good question. It's, a, it's actually a very good biological question, but it okay. probably, I'm sure somebody actually done, done the research on it, and it probably has to do with other aspects of the diet, the environment, and possibly even of the uh, you know, genetic makeup of, of the French population. Okay, okay, fair enough. The word paradox, takeaway lesson number one is the word paradox tends to get tossed around a lot and, um, and extended beyond its original meaning. But, uh, but some of the paradoxes on there are actual uh, logical paradoxes. Mm. Although, again, some of them are, have already been, been resolved and they were only paradoxical in the time in which they originated. Like um, some of the ancient philosophers thought it was paradoxical that in order to get from point A to point B, you had to pass through an infinite number of diminishingly small distances uh, in between. That was Zeno's paradox, which That's right. was paradoxical to the Greeks. Um, but it's really not all that baffling once you understand the concept of a geometric sum and, and the uh, mathematical results that an infinite sum of 
of diminishingly small quantities is actually a finite number as opposed right. to infinity. We had to wait, however, all the way until Newton and Leibniz for figuring that one out. Right, so it exactly. took some time. I mean, it's, it's not surprising that the Greeks were, in fact, puzzled by that. One of my favorite paradoxes on this list, um, on, again, on this website, uh, which is the, the Wikipedia list of paradoxes, uh, it's an actual paradox you know, in logic, and it's an important one historically. It's called the Barber Paradox, and it was uh, formulated by Bertrand Russell at the beginning of the 20th century. And it goes something like this. Uh, an adult male barber shaves all men who do not shave themselves and no one else. Can he shave, shave himself? And there is no, ans- no good answer to it because, of course, if he shaves himself, then he's in contradiction of, of, of the fact that uh, barbers cannot shave themselves. Um, but on the other hand... If he doesn't shave himself, then he does. Then he does. That's right. Right. So it is one of those things where, in fact, there is a paradox. There is a situation where logic seems to have hit a wall. And this is one of the things that is interesting about paradoxes because they do show, at the very least, that there is something incomplete about logical systems. In fact, interestingly, I said this was, this was um, the Barber paradox is interesting historically because this... Uh, came up during the the early part of the 20th century quest for uh, a self-contained logical foundations to mathematics, which is what Bertrand Russell and others were after. And in 1931, I believe, it was uh, Kurt Gödel who published his famous incompleteness theorem uh, in, in logic and mathematics, which shows, in fact, demonstrates that there is no such a thing as a completely self-contained, self-justified logical system. In other words, there is no answer to some of these paradoxes. You have to step outside of the of the particular logical system which the, in which you formulated the paradox to find a solution. But in so doing, you're moving to a different kind of logic. So there is no solution to these kind of paradoxes. It's a, there is a limit to logic, in other words. So I'd like to bring up my um, pick of the for this episode, which is a website called The Fallacy Files. And Fallacy Files is just what it sounds like. It is a great collection of all sorts of information about um, logical fallacies. And my favorite part of that, um, the website, is what they call the taxonomy of of logical fallacies. It's a really complex and, and interesting diagram that shows the relationships between the different kinds of fallacies and how they are connected to each other logically. And the main thing that this this taxonomy does is it makes very clear to the user what is the distinction between a a formal and an informal logical fallacy. What's an informal logical fallacy? An informal logical fallacy is a fallacy that goes around dressed in blue jeans instead of (laughs) uh, tie in. No, never mind. (laughs) Informal fallacy is, in fact, a form of bad reasoning but it is not really in violation, strictly speaking, of a, um, a system of logic, logical rules. So a logical fallacy, uh, uh, sorry, uh, a formal fallacy is something, is a construction, is an argument that actually violates directly the laws of logic. Got it. An informal fallacy doesn't do that, but it is in fact a, 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 an instance of bad reasoning. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so let's, let's pick my, my favorite one um, here is uh, the ad hominem attack. Uh, which is an informal form- fallacy. It, it is okay. an informal fallacy, and the uh, you know the ad hominem attack uh, is a situation where instead of uh, attacking the argument that somebody's making, you attack the person, you attack the character of the person, and then try to undermine his arguments essentially indirectly. So if you say to somebody that you know you shouldn't believe what he says because he's an atheist or because he's a Christian or something like that, you're making an ad hominem attack. You're not actually engaging the arguments that the person is 
is making, you are trying to undermine his credibility, essentially. And this uh, is done very often in politics, as I'm sure you're aware of. Right. Well, would it be an ad hominem attack to accuse the person of not having relevant credentials to speak about a subject? Because certainly the identity of the person does act, it is actually relevant to whether they're making a credible argument, right? That is a very good point. And, and uh, in fact, it makes a, uh, your example makes a distinction between when ad hominem is in fact a fallacy and when it's in fact a reasonable thing to do. That is, if you're invoking an authority uh, to settle a, a dispute, I'd say, uh, you know, that we're talking about evolution uh, with a creationist, and you say, well, I don't actually understand the details of the arguments, but the overwhelming majority of biologists who presumably do understand the arguments uh, think that evolution actually does happen. You are not, strictly speaking, committing a fallacy, because what you're doing is you're invoking a reasonable authority. Just like we do when we go in everyday life, when we go and bring our car to a mechanic or when we are sick and go to the doctor. We, we don't go to the mechanic when we're sick and we don't bring our car to the doctor. And the reason for that is because we make the reasonable assumption that other things being equal, it is more likely that a mechanic is going to solve a mechanical problem and a doctor is going to solve a, a medical problem, right? Mm -hmm. So in that case, we are in fact invoking a, um, an authority, which is invoking an authority, making an argument from authority is sort of the flip side of making a, a dominant attack um, because it, it's a sort of the opposite thing. You're doing exactly the opposite, right? Instead of, of undermining somebody uh, not by, by addressing his argument but by addressing his character, you're actually doing the, the opposite. You're building an argument based on somebody's credentials. Hmm. So it's not a fallacy if you do it that way. It is a fallacy if you say that because he's a biologist, Anything that he says about evolution has to be right. In other words, if you make it airtight, if you make it an absolute statement that just because person X is an, is an expert in that field, then whatever he says goes and there are no possible exceptions, then you are in fact committing a fallacy. Right. So it seems like we have to make a distinction between the kinds of arguments that are bolstered by the credentials of the person saying them and the kind of arguments that should stand on their own. Because... One of my pet peeve fallacies that, that I consider a fallacy is when people make a philosophical argument and they cite the philosopher as if because it was said by an expert in philosophy, it's more likely to be true the same way if a statement about biology was made by an expert in biology, it's more likely to be true. But I feel like that doesn't apply to philosophy. A philosophical argument should stand on its own and it's not made more credible by the fact that it was a famous philosopher who said it as opposed to just some guy on the street, right? Well, he I has can... no expertise that I don't. There's no information I'm missing. Aha. Right? Uh, it seems to me that we will have to devote a separate issue, a separate uh, podcast to that particular topic because the implication of what you're saying is that you don't seem to think that philosophy actually requires any particular expertise and I would beg to disagree. Yeah, guilty. <laughs> <laughs> with, that, uh, with that assumption. So in other words, any technical field that requires a certain degree of expertise. Now, however, you are onto something there if instead of philosophy, we use, say, theology. One can make the argument that theology being about nothing, because I don't think that gods exist, then uh, expertise in theology is equivalent to having expertise in, I don't know, astrology, for instance. One can say that there are astrological experts, but since astrology is entirely pseudoscientific, then it doesn't really matter that there are experts. There is, it's expertise about nothing. So you, your point is well taken. It's just that I don't think it applies to philosophy. I think it does apply to, some, uh, to a lot of the pseudoscience, obviously. All right, we will address this topic in a future podcast. I insist on it. Uh, but for now, we're out of time. Join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense. The 
the Rationally Speaking podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollack and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening.